I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Ro, host of The Queen Pod. Queen have very kindly allowed us to use their wonderful music on this podcast, which is awesome. But the rest is up to us, darlings. Our goal is to provide you with an entertaining and informative companion piece to the entire Queen back catalogue. All of Queen, track by track. So, if you're in a position to offer us some support, please go to www.patreon.com forward slash queenpod and take a look at how to get involved. Thanks so much, and now sit back and enjoy while we rock you. Welcome back to Queen Pod Season 2. Yes, we're here uh, with the second half of uh, Night at the Opera. So without further ado, let me introduce my fine cohorts on the Queen Pod. We play all day with Susie Kay, the girl from number four. It's comedian Suze Kempner. Thank you. I love my new address. Thank you. <laughs> Did you ever live at a number four? Never. Until... Lived at 13, though. And it shows. It does. Okay. <laughs> listen to the wise, listen to the wise, listen to the wise man. <laughs> it's Queen documentarian Simon Lupton. Finally, my wisdom is recognised after <laughs> all these years. Thank you. Uh, he's just a poor boy. Nobody loves him. It's comedian John Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. So tr- so true, given the uh, cur- current financial state of comedy oh, as well. God. <laughs> and the love of my life is me. It's your host, Roman <laughs> Chubby. <laughs> oh, so much fun we have. Um, how's everyone doing? We all good? Very good. Yeah. Very good. Don't Glad answer that. John, John's having a bad day. There's no getting <laughs> around that. But um, um, uh, but I'm sure he's going to be uh, super happy to be doing this podcast on a delicious load of Queen stuff. Um, but before we get into any of that, it is time for Queen Are the Champions. We are the champions. We are the champions. This is where we all ha- uh, let us let each other know if we've had a lovely, delicious Queen moment of the week. How about you, Simon? Have you had one? Yeah, it's it's less of a, a Queen moment, but a, a little um, reminder that um, there are people out there in all shapes and sizes spreading the word of Queen in very unusual ways. Um, and I got <laughs> I got pointed in the direction of this guy, who um, a gentleman called Steve Briars. Um, and if you go and look at his website, uh, he claims, I am proud to be widely regarded as Wales's number one award-winning DJ, 
with a reputation as being one of the UK's most professional, reliable and experienced DJs. And I should just point out that this is DJ as in mobile disco for weddings. Oh, not yeah. Oh. The no, DJ we're getting that. that young people are <laughs> thinking, oh, that sounds really cool. It is, but in a different way. Sure. Um, he's also very proud to be a world record holder and to have been included in the Guinness Book of Records on many occasions over the years, including the special year 2000 Millennium Edition. I first set my record as the world's fastest backwards talker in 1988, live on the Radio 1 Roadshow in Tembe with Simon Mayo. Being a Queen fan, I recited the lyrics of Queen's classic album, A Night at the Opera, backwards all 2,343 words in 15 minutes and 7 seconds to set a new world record in front of an audience of at least 10,000. An American took the record off me soon after, but I then appeared on a BBC Radio 4 show called Cat's Whiskers in July 1989, where I won back my record reciting the lyrics in a time of 9 minutes 58.44 seconds, and it's a world record that I am still proud to hold to this day. So I thought that deserved a wow. shout out. That's Particularly enormous. Seeing as we're talking about that very album. Are you allowed to say what his website is? Because that is epic. We should all check it out. I think if it's you Google Steve Briars, you'll Steve find Breyers it. Steve Briars will find it. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> Wales World record holder. <laughs> yeah. That is a fine endeavour. I see. I've got a funny feeling. I equaled a Queen world record once. Ooh. On, on our Radio X show, there had been a thing on... I think it was on TMS or on some sports podcast where one of the presenters had tried to break the record for naming as many Queen songs after being given their opening line. Um, And as a joke, we did it on our show. And I think, if I remember rightly, I got 14 in 30 seconds. Wow. Which equaled the record. However, A, it was completely unofficial because no one from Guinness was there. B... Because after every one, Ellis said correct, it, which they hadn't done in the initial that one. That takes up time. It took up about four or five of the seconds. So I was very up, I was very annoyed with him. So I was like, I could have beaten that if you hadn't kept saying correct. Um, but it's quite a fun one to do if you get a friend to pick, pick the opening lines at random and just say them to you. Because what you then have to do in your head is either pick up the tune or continue the lyrics if it's one right. that you don't know yeah. mm. wow it's a fun game we'll play that we'll play that on the last episode of this series it's gonna be great <laughs> <laughs> how long ago was that john that would have been about three years ago you still angry with alice about it not about that okay <laughs> <laughs> well i mean there was we used to play a quiz with each other and when I picked my specialist topic as Queen, uh, his op- so the agreement was that the first week you ask questions, they have to be quite easy. Week one, he asked me t- how tall Brian May was. What? And I was out by half an inch. No. I lost. Yeah. And he also asked me what John Deacon's A-level results were, which I thought was way too deep. And I got, yeah. them, I got them wrong by one. No way. Uh. Do you remember any of that? Do you know how, old, how tall Brian is and... May, I think, is six foot one, uh, and I think I said six foot one and a half, and Mm -hmm. Deacon got three A's, and I said two A's and a B. Amazing. Ah, of course he did. Should have known that Deacon would get three A's. (laughs) Of course he did. (laughs) 
That's so good. I've got a cheeky queen moment. My mate um, Bendy sent me this. Uh, we, we were just having a little text interchange uh, over just uh, just how full on it is at the moment. Life is so full on, and um, and he just sent me this little clip uh, of under pressure. That this family, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but this um, this really sweet family, this Marsh family, they're obviously one of these families. Like there's there's a mum and a dad and about six kids, and they all play tunes and stuff. Um, and they they've sort of arranged the song and they play it all together, and it's it's just very sweet. But the lyrics are on it. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've always kind of just slightly written off, not written off, but I've always just assumed that the lyrics and under pressure are slightly gibberishy. But somehow, reading the lyrics in order, in the current climate, made it an absolute essay on the lives that we are living right now. And I strongly recommend revisiting that song. It makes so much sense. It was so, Mm. so, it's so on the ball. Uh, It's on YouTube. You can find it. Uh, Let's hope that, um, you know. There's no copyright issues. <laughs> uh, but for me, yeah, I had an absolute epiphany with the lyrics of that song suddenly. And I was in floods of tears by the end of it. It was amazing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there we go. Has anyone else got a little cheeky queen moment they want to share? I've just, well, I've put my life-size Freddy up. Oh, yeah. Uh, you can see it. Someone uh, bought me that for my birthday. And he's up there with De Niro on a poster. And my friend Aaron has pointed out that I'm starting to look like... Um, Robert De Niro in The King of Comedy <laughs> like cardboard cutouts and <laughs> celebrities around me that I chat to at night um, uh, and, and what did you say to Freddie last night? He only went up today but tonight I'll say see you in the morning <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> stuff. Shall, we Shall we move on? It is now time for Love of Our Lives <laughs> have a fan letter that I want to share with you guys from uh, Dr. Mary Kate Chessy, PhD. Uh, And she is one of the lovely listeners, uh, maybe the first lovely listener who emailed us and pointed out that the track 39 is the 39th album track from Queen, which is just glorious. What? Yes. (laughs) We don't know. We don't know if that was intentional or... Can it be accident? Accidental? I I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if it was intentional. It genuinely is. I have counted. Like it is the thirty ninth album track that they mm. released, and it happens to be called thirty nine. Why set it in nineteen in in a thirty nine? Um, but uh, she has a a really beautifully tenuous. Um, seven Degrees of Rye for us. Uh, in 2012, she was a researcher at Harvard and one of her mentors uh, had done research for a professor at the University of Toronto. That professor had studied physics at Imperial with Brian May. That's true. Wow. So she wow. has a legit Seven Degrees of Rye. Um, she is a huge Queen fan. She'd sort of set... Um, don't know if you guys know that sort of lockdown Insta hashtag um, Jam with Bry hashtag Jam with mm. Bry mm-hmm. when he yeah. released a bit of song and she she sort of started that off and was playing all the bass lines on a bassoon um, and uh, and she has taken it to she is a physics um, uh, PhD 
and she's taken the time to send us a special relativity analysis of the story in 39. And my sense is that if Brian May ever did decide to listen to this pod, this might be the only bit he'd find interesting. So, <laughs> I, really, I just sort of feel like I want to share it. Now, with apologies to Mary, I have had to shorten the thesis and I've probably done that quite badly, but she's written an actual thesis for us. I just really want to shine a light on, light on her. She's putting this thesis into practice. She's writing an article on 39 for the Physics Teacher magazine because she wants to get Queen into the classroom. She's a total legend. Uh, and she says, I have a physics PhD and college physics teaching experience, so this is for real. 39 presents an interdisciplinary treasure for physics students as the song invites discussions around science and music and ethical considerations of technology development and colonisation. All right, wow. so I think going forwards this bit is mainly for John, but buckle up. <laughs> so uh, she's broken it all down. Bear with me. Here we go. So in short... If we ignore practical considerations like fuel and acceleration, then there are hundreds of planets outside our solar system that the volunteers could have got to while ageing only one year and letting a hundred years pass on Earth. I feel like at this point I should say to the listeners, there is a song on the first side of A Night at the Opera called 39, in which Brian has written about some travellers, some uh, uh, volunteers that go on a, on a spaceship and when they get back a hundred years has passed on Earth, where only a year has passed um, for them. So then she goes, interpretation of lyrics. The volunteers depart from and return to Earth during 39 years, e.g. departure in 1939 and return in 2039, for example. From the lyrics, we also learn that the volunteers are older but a year, so they experience the passing of only one year on their journey. <coughs> Preliminary calculation. If one year passes in the volunteers' reference frame while they travel near the speed of light and a hundred years pass in the Earth frame, we find a gamma factor of 100 and a relative speed between frames of 0.999995 times the speed of light. And then she put in brackets 99.995% of the speed of light. I don't understand any of that particular paragraph, but if you're a physics listener out there, I know that you do, and I'm sure that you're um, going to have to change your pants right now. The distance the volunteers could travel. If the volunteers travel at near the speed of light for 100 years of Earth time, they'll be able to make it almost 50 light years from Earth before they need to turn around and head back. However, in the volunteers' reference frame, space gets shorter all around them as they accelerate up to the closest speed of light. For the volunteers, with the gamma factor of 100, a 50 light year distance looks like only 0.5 light years. I know that I've lost everybody, but check this out. Practical considerations. This calculation doesn't account for acceleration. We just assume that the volunteers can accelerate at insane rates and survive somehow. They would need some sci-fi technology that allows the human body to accelerate tremendously without the guts getting all squished to death. If the volunteers go into some sci-fi hibernation state, then they could get older but a year, while more than one year passes even in their own reference frame. Maybe they pull a hand solo and get frozen in carbonite. So... Where did the volunteers go? And this is why I had to read this bit out. I love this. According to the Planetary Systems Database of the NASA Exoplanet Archive, there are 146 planetary systems outside our own solar system within 50 light years from Earth, which is the farthest the volunteers could possibly have got if they had all had the best conceivable technology. The closest planetary system is called Proxima Sen B, but other nearby systems have cool names like uh, Epps Eri, Tea Garden Star, Wolf 1061, and Upsand. 
these are the places they could have visited. Conclusion. Based just on physics and song lyrics, the song of 39, the story of 39 is possible, but depends on some seriously advanced technology, either to A, accelerate at ridiculous rates and survive, or B, hibernate, hibernate without ageing. As a matter of preference, she says, I like the preposterous acceleration near speed of light travel explanation, but that is more fantastic sci-fi than other interpretations. Best wishes, Mary-Kate, PhD. Wow. Well, yeah, wow. She never has felt calculated. Dumber. No, that's true. <laughs> Neither have I. But she's genuinely calculated the distances, the places they could have gone, and applied it to. Yeah. That, I just love that someone out there has taken the time to do that and has decided, not only have they decided to do that, they're going to teach as many physics students as possible <laughs> how, how to do it. Um, and she says that the lyrics allow, Brian has allowed the, you know, she's the lyrics allow for any kind of technology they might be using and all that kind of stuff. Like that. It is viable. Mm. Brian's used proper physics. It's exciting to imagine that in the future science will use the song 39 as a basis for us to travel to other worlds <laughs> thanks for bringing it home Suze I really appreciate it <laughs> full stop <Okay>. question mark <laughs> uh, yeah yeah it's like the end of Flash Gordon yeah, yeah. dot 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 question yeah. mark uh, or, or how freaked out we'll all be in 2039 when a ship comes in and the blokes go we're back <laughs> have you missed us I'm like, gosh, you haven't aged at all. <laughs> maybe a year. Maybe like a year. Do you think when the uh, when the good doctor finished writing that email, she thought, oh my God, a year has passed and I've only been gone an hour, but actually it just took her a year to write the email. I mean, I've passed that down. Up. Like, it was an amazing read and I, lo- I love her passion. <laughs> I would say that that was... Um, probably not of interest to many people but the problem is the one person that will be of huge interest to is brian may yeah that's it that's my point yeah this is legit a clip that we could send (laughs) (laughs) and about the only thing we ever ever probably could uh so yeah that one's for brian uh (laughs) fantastic stuff so producer giles have you got a fan question for us or what yeah funnily enough dr chessie sent in uh, a question (gasps) (laughs) she asks um What's a Queen song that you'd like to hear in the style of a different Queen song? That was a good question. I think on that one, maybe. Mm. But I'll, I'll, ask, I'll ask an easier one from Hugh Jenkins. Hugh Jenkins uh, writes in, if you could go back in time to any one Queen show or performance, mm. which would it be? Hugh says, for me, for him, there's a few that would make the shortlist. Wembley 86 is so iconic and the live video I've watched more than any other. Montreal 81 is a great performance. The Sun City 84 shows would have been great to witness despite the controversy. The one gig that wins the battle for for Hugh would be the Rainbow. Just the Mm. chance to hear those early songs live. Well, I I did a, a sort of a thought experiment on an online gig where I asked all our guests to pick a year they could travel back to, live from January the 1st to December 31st, basically give their reasoning and I picked 1970 and because I'm insane came up with a 50 gig schedule (laughs) traveling around the world where I could see all of my favorite artists and they were surprised that I picked 1970 because of Queen but it just meant that I could get people who were at the end of the 60s and at the beginning of the 70s but I would probably have wanted to see one of Queen's very early gigs in 1970 just after John Deacon joined because at time of going to press, those are the only shows I don't have access to in some way. 
So I think to have seen them at Imperial College or down in Truro when there were maybe 40 people in the audience, I would have got something that no one else could possibly have had other than those few people there. And I could probably have got to chat to the band afterwards in a way that if I went to Wembley, as much as it's iconic and it would be an incredible experience, I probably would spend most of my time needing a wee and feeling a bit (laughs) panicky. But to, to have sort of maybe... I don't know, hitched a ride with them from Truro to Yeovil when they did one of those early tours or from Egham up to Liverpool when they played in Liverpool. I think that would have been quite a personal experience as opposed to feeling part of a big collective Queen experience. Yeah. I'm going to go for 81 because that performance in Montreal where Freddie sings Somebody to Love is my favourite yeah, favourite live, just one song Me too, um, yeah. I've ever seen them do. But Mil- Milton Keynes is better than Montreal, surely. Oh, did I say Montreal? Someone's... I meant Milton Keynes. Oh. oh. Yeah, sorry, and sorry. Also, also, it's quite a quick commute. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think of that, but that is very true. Pop in on Nana on the way in Dunstable, yeah. and she'd be 40 years younger. Um, and But the house would look the same. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, I've got quite a day ahead of me. <laughs> Oh, wow. Go on, Simon. Which one do you go for? Well, yeah, it's it's interesting. There are sort of key, but it would have been, yeah, I, yeah. I would love to go on to Live Aid uh, and seen mm. that. But I think rather than just pick one, I would love to have followed the Live Killers tour and gone because I I think that was. I've heard so many stories from people who who did do that, and it, it was incredible, an incredible time to be a Queen fan as well they were really started to bang out the hits Mm. and that live killer the footage I've seen from that looks amazing so yeah I would like to have done three or four or maybe more gigs on that tour I'm mindful of uh, we had Jim Jenkins on at the end of the last series who's uh, maybe the world's greatest Queen super fan of all time (laughs) and you know he's uh, uh, part of the fan club uh, runs the fan club and um, with Jackie and um uh, and he said, now he said that it was it the game tour that was the best one. Yeah, we asked him which was the best tour that he'd been to, and he because he'd follow entire tours. Yeah, and I can't remember whether it was the game or maybe News of the World that he mentioned. So, mm-hmm. based on his advice, I'd probably go to that one. <laughs> However, for me personally, and I think it is interesting that none of us have straight away gone live aid. Um, but uh, I would go to uh, Nebworth at the end yeah. of the Live Magic Tour because we don't have it on video that much. I think there is some footage, but it hasn't... Like, Wembley 86 has been released, but Nebworth came after that, and it was the biggest yeah. audience they'd ever played to, and it was the last time that they played us for live uh, in front of a stadium crowd. I think they mm. did a little after show one time after that. And I want... I just, that, that is the gig that I miss. I, mm. I, I, I really miss... That I was not at that gig, mm-hmm. um, uh, and th- at that point they were playing so much amazing stuff in their set list. The set list was insane, you know. Mm. I mean, yeah. It, uh, so that's the one for me. Do you do you mind indulging me for just thirty seconds while I give you a little detail from my schedule of gigs in nineteen seventy? <laughs> yeah. Please do. So I I fly back from. Um, Uh, New York at the end of June having seen uh, Lou Reed's last performance with the Velvet Underground Uh, 
I go to Truro to see Queen's first gig on the 27th of the 6th. Now, that's not... That's without John. Mm, yeah. Okay. The next day in Shepton Mallet, there was a rock festival with uh, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Frank Zappa, The Birds and the Moody Blues. Wow. I then have written, quote, visit Freddie and Roger's stall and be friends. <laughs> <laughs> and invite them to see Elton John perform at the Hampstead Comedy Club, which I believe was his first ever gig. Oh. However, in, in, um, in September, having gone back to America to see Elvis and uh, Elton John at the Troubadour, I then go to see Queen on September the 16th at the College of Estates Management, where they supported Hawkwind. However... I tell them after they finish their support set that Jimi Hendrix is about to do an impromptu jam at Ronnie Scott's. So I head to Ronnie Scott's with uh, Brian and Freddie. Jimi Hendrix then very sadly dies two days later, and that will be his last ever performance, meaning that Freddie and Roger always remember me as the guy who gave them a heads up about Jimi Hendrix's last ever performance, and that cements our friendship. Wow. Oh, I mean, this, this yeah. is all super plausible as well. Like genuinely, it, I can see it. You catch him on well, the way thanks, up. Also, thanks to the email we have, I now know the technology necessary to make that happen. <laughs> yeah. I want to just uh, clarify something for our more casual listeners here. John, John's gone full tilt boogie on this. You've spent a lot of time and thought and effort and research in all of this. There's no doubt about it. Um, you could sell your house and then go back in time, and you'd be such a rich guy. So that would fund your year. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Everyone would want to be your friend. Uh, yeah. But because all of all of Queen's gigs are online, like there's a list of them, mm. you can kind of play a little mind game where you go back in time and plot out your sort of week long trip yeah. following like them. a fantasy football oh. league, but for gigs, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Uh, the other <laughs> thing I should point out for our dear listeners is 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 John is not currently. At, well, we're obviously we're all on Zoom. He's not in his house. He's had to go around to his girlfriend's house because the boiler's bust, and he's all dressed up in, in, in incredible. He's so cold. He's got a hat on and everything. And earlier yeah. we were like, "Oh, we're going to do this thing." He's like, "Oh, I haven't got my notes with me, but this you have with you." <laughs> well, I, I am wearing a Queen T-shirt, but I'm also wearing a hoodie, uh, um, a thermal top, an Arctic coat, and a woolly hat oh, God. because. Um, my girlfriend's boiler broke slash was turned off depending on whose <laughs> story you want to believe is she going to listen like... to this then you can tell us the <laughs> no, truth the st- I mean <laughs> if, she, if she does something's gone bad <laughs> there's something very endearing about just a guy sat indoors in a woolly hat going and then in 1970 I'd go here and <laughs> become friends with these guys like you've well, won a competition to join us. In, the, in those moments of self, self-doubt that Brian and Freddie and Roger and co might have had, you'd be the one going, trust me, lads, you're going to be fine. You're going to be good. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I, I'd be like, hey, guys, you've just got to take it any way the wind blows. You know, just... One day the hammer will fall and you guys will be at the Millionaire's Waltz. Yeah. They'll be like, this guy, I, there's something about this guy. <laughs> we should have him in all of our studio recordings just in case. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, that's amazing. 
Well, <laughs> should we uh, get on to the works? Here we are. Night at the Opera, Side B, released uh, on the 21st of November 1975, or thereabouts, on EMI in the UK and Electra in the US. Um, just a quick recap, it was produced by Roy Thomas Baker and Queen, engineered by Mike Stone, and recorded from August to November of that year. Uh, and the album takes its name, of course, from the 1935 Marx Brothers comedy, which their next album, A Day at the Races, did similar. But, Simon, do you want to update us on how what the, what was their touring status like at this stage? We didn't talk about yes. that last time. Yes, I would like to update you on that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but before I do, actually, just hearing you, um, it reminded me of something. I, I think this might be an apocryphal story, but if, if I hope it's true is that when they decided to call the album A Night at the Opera because it was named after they'd seen the film, the, the you know, Marx Brothers film was A Night at the Opera and that's what inspired them. Um, they wrote to Groucho Marx to say this is what they wanted to do and would he mind? Um, and they got a lovely letter back, apparently, from Groucho Marx that said, um, absolutely delighted that you want to name your album after our movie A Night at the Opera. We'd, we'd be more than honoured. Um, providing that you name your set next album after our next movie, which is called The Greatest Hits of the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know if that's true, but I hope so. Anyway. Oh. That, sound, um, that sounds like Groucho. Yeah. It does, doesn't yeah. it? Uh, <laughs> it does. On the last live tour roundup I did, um, it included the game-changing tour to Japan, in which Queen experienced their, their own dose of Beatlemania, if you like. Um, it was the beginning of a long and mutual love affair between the band and the country, but I was amused by one interview with Freddie I came across, uh, probably given when he was in one of his more mischievous moods, should we say, um, where when asked what the highlight of his visit to Japan was, he commented on visiting a strip club where he was delighted to discover beautiful Japanese women shedding their kimonos while dancing to kill a queen. That <laughs> oh, him wow. was the height of his career um, anyway as we know the summer is spent recording the United the Opera album and finished just in time for the band to hit the road in November on a UK tour um, interestingly it is while Queen are rehearsing for that tour at Elstree Studios that Bruce Gowers who had directed the band's Live at the Rainbow film is asked to shoot a quick promo video um, for the band's next single which is going to be called Bohemian Rhapsody um, I think they had about four hours to do it, but video history is made, which we will talk about at another time. Um, a few interesting events on the UK tour, which I gleaned from Greg Brooks's brilliant Queen Live book. Um, one of the roadies uh, for the support act remarked about Freddie, I once saw him literally shrink this six foot bloke down to an inch. Queen had just taken to the stage and this bloke shouted to Freddie, you effing poof, or something like that. Freddie demanded that the crew turn the spotlight on the crowd and find this fella and then said to him, say that again, darling. And the bloke didn't know what to do. The whole crowd was laughing at him. Freddie had this ability to milk an audience. If he'd have said to them, take your clothes off, they would have done it. <laughs> um, after a concert in Newcastle, the entourage are heading towards Dundee when they are detained by a police roadblock intent on searching everybody and everything for drugs. And when a policeman asks Freddie if he has any drugs, the reply is, don't be so impertinent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nothing is found, and the door rumbles on. 
Um, the UK tour finishes with a concert on Christmas Eve at the Hammersmith Odeon, which is filmed by the BBC and broadcast live simultaneously on BBC Two and BBC Radio. Uh, this is one of Queen's most famous and most loved gigs, and if you don't already have it, the A Night at the Odeon package is well worth getting because it is a truly great uh, mm-hmm. show. Um, 1976 then kicks off with a headline US tour which for the first time is not interrupted by illness to any band member it was also the first tour to be managed by Jerry Stickles who would then go on to work with the band right up to their last magic tour Um, a quick return to Japan followed then by a 12 day tour of Australia which is extremely well received and a much more rewarding experience for the band compared to their first visit which we talked about on a previous pod um not much else sort of, of notes what happened on those shows. They all went very well from what I can gather, but I was really intrigued by which songs from the Night at the Opera album the band played on these and subsequent tours. And at the risk of dropping another modern times rock and roll clangor, um, I, I was reminded that pretty much all the songs uh, were performed except for Good Company and Seaside Rendezvous, which means they did do Lazing on a Sunday Afternoon Live, um, in Japan and on some of the US tour dates. Now, we don't usually indulge in playing bootlegs on mm. this podcast, um, but I think it's worth making an exception on this occasion because it is quite great to listen to. Um, and so to finish, and with huge apologies for the quality of the sound, because this is not an official recording, um, how about a little bit of this? Thank you. Ah, yes. That reminds me. We're going to do a song from, this is one minute, six seconds of a song called Days Week on a Sunday Afternoon. Thank you very much for that. I have a question. <clears throat> if you're just an ordinary guy who comes from London town, why would you go every Friday? To, why would you go painting in the Louvre? Is that a That's thing? That's what most ordinary guys from London town did, I think, in those days. <laughs> They'll just nip over to Paris. Yeah. Who does anyone go painting in the Louvre? Is that a thing? Was that a thing? <laughs> Other than the fact that doesn't matter. They're only lyrics. They're only lyrics. Uh, that is a. Yeah, that is a righteous version of the song. It is, it is a very difficult difficult recording. There's no getting around that. No, <laughs> my God, the balls have decided to go. And he just goes in. 
He's yeah. got no problem. Bit, when's it, I can't remember what lyric it's on, but oh yeah, I think it's when he goes, uh, he goes, Tuesday, go painting at the Louvre, and everyone just goes. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> they love it. They love it that he does that. So that's why he does it as an ordinary guy. Yeah. Because the audience think that's brilliant. Right. It is cool. <laughs> the harmonies are great, though. Mm. Oh yeah, are great. Amazing. Thank you. What a treat. Um, <laughs> Uh, so John's been a little bit quiet so far, but we are now going to look at the first song on side B of uh, A Night of the Opera, which is a whopping 8 minutes, 20, 21 seconds long. It's by Brian May, and it's the Prophet song. Uh, uh, the working title was People of the Earth, and the song is the longest Queen studio album track that includes vocals. Um, the instrumental track 13 for Made in Heaven is 22 minutes and 32 seconds. Actually, I listened to it. Um, that yesterday just to check and it was of course it was longer uh, and I just thought it was one sort of drone all the way through but it isn't it's quite beautiful actually the main <laughs> thing but um, yeah Prophet Song longest song that they've got um, I think I'll play a, a big fat chunk from uh, about a minute and a half in that kind of will give everyone a sense of what this monster track is <laughs> That is that's that's a that's a just a rock solid rock track right mm. there, isn't it? And then absolutely bonkers and amazing, an opus. John, yes, you've got strong feelings about Prophet Song. Oh, it'd certainly be in my top ten Queen songs of all time. In sort of more jovial moments, I do call it the song Bohemian Rhapsody could have been. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's it's interesting in that it's. It's in a sense their fell farewell to the fantastical, and it represents along with Bohemian Rhapsody, but I think more so that the sort of the the end of the of this period of Queen in that sort of proggy realm. Um, I remember vividly playing it to my dad when I was a kid, and him saying, "Oh, this is about 
uh, Noah and the Ark. And I was like, oh, God, yeah, of course it is. How did I not notice that? But even though it's it's such a long track, there is there is a sort of... It does rattle along. It's not meandering in any way. And it's all to do with that sort of hook that Brian has going on underneath that just sort of keeps pulling you back into the song. I, I think he does use wah pedal on the first bit of the solo. <laughs> um, I'll throw that cat amongst <laughs> pigeons that cannot neither answer nor confirm nor deny <laughs> that question. But I think that bit where it goes... The first oh, bit yeah, when the yeah. lead guitar mm-hmm. comes in, I think it's 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 got a bit of wah there, either static or um, uh, or, or sort of uh, what's it on the opposite, movable wah. Um, it's my so it, yes, it's certainly my favourite song on the album. Really, mm, right. on the whole yeah, album? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I think it's an absolute monster. Mm. Beautiful. Did yeah. you know that Brian wrote the song after a dream he had about a great flood during his recovery from illness during the recording? Oh, shelter? really? I did That's, not. Know so that. it's good that you mentioned that uh, Noah the Ark thing. Um, and in fact, some portions of the song has been have been recorded but abandoned during sessions as early as Queen Two, which is incredible. And Brian told Melody Maker in 1975. Um, in the dream, people were walking on the streets trying to touch each other's hands, desperate to try and make some sign that they were caring about other people. I felt that the trouble must be, and this is one of my obsessions anyway, that people don't make enough contact with each other. A feeling that runs through a lot of the songs I write is that if there is a direction to mankind, it ought to be a coming together, and at the moment, it doesn't seem to be happening very well. And they said that in 1975, and I just mm. thought I'd read that right now. Mm. Times have changed. (laughs) (laughs) Remarkably, also, they played it live. Mm. Yeah. Which is kind of mind-blowing. And the live recordings of it, though many of them, I'm afraid to say, Simon, I've accessed via bootlegs. (laughs) It does sound like a real spectacle to hear live. Yeah, I wonder if they were using all the, um, you know, different speaker positions to make the most of it. It's such a shame that we can't have that now. We can't yeah. go see this live now because think what they could do with modern technology yeah. this live. I know that Brighton Rock sort of is the basis for Brian's guitar solo, but it is always cool when you do get a few strains of Prophet song in those solos, mm. even today, and a little bit of White Queen here. And uh, uh, sorry, um, what am I thinking of the the Day of the Races track, uh, White Man? You often mm. get a little strain of that in in what he's playing. Um, but I suppose. Uh, you know where you had Brighton Rock opening Sheer Heart Attack and it was like this big epic rock track it's nice that you have this uh, another bite at the cherry and even more ambition and uh, it's phenomenal it's really phenomenal Mm. Um, but it also I think belongs to a Queen tradition which ends with innuendo Mm. so they, they they go away from this in the 80s but that's what I think I've, I love so much about Innuendo is there are echoes of early Queen in Innuendo. Yes. And, I, and I think this is definitely part of that sort of family tree of, of March of the Black Queen, yeah. um, Brighton Rock, and then Innuendo and all, 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 to a certain extent, the show must go on as mm. well. Mm. Um, that whole album, actually, the Innuendo album, I think refers to a lot of this era of Queen. and It's very much the Casino Royale of of Queen mm-hmm. albums, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, uh, 
I've got a little thing here about... Um, so Brian talked on the making of A Night at the Opera, um, and this is a little bit detailed. So this is for the guitar fans out there. Um, uh, that uh, Brian said that Prophet Song was built around a different tuning, the bottom strings tuned down to a D rather than an E, and I became fascinated with what you could do with that. It gives the guitar a lot more depth. It wasn't a very common thing to do in those days. I wouldn't go so far as to say I was the first. I probably wasn't, but it was unusual, and it gave the guitar a real sort of doomy kind of growl to it. It's different from tuning the whole guitar down at, at semi-turn, which a lot of people do. This is actually the bottom string going down a turn, so most of the guitar is still playable in the normal way in tune with the piano. Mm. that sort of jump in that that is something that every metal band has copied off in really yeah what it allows you to do is play bar chords very very quickly because you're you're putting one finger on rather than three to make a to make a power chord and it it, yeah if that means anything (laughs) um i can play every it's just heavy it makes everything sound heavier what a legend that's really cool also then we should have a chat about the crazy choral section that's in the middle of this mm. song, which is just mm. a tour de force. Um, and I, I've got a little bit of detail about how they got into that and what, what techniques they were doing. And I have a little YouTube clip of Freddie doing this live. So I just Ooh, thought I'd, yeah. I'd, 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 I'd share that with you. Maybe we could talk about it. I'm sure, Suze, you'll have a lot to say about <laughs> this as well. Um, and Simon, if you have, if I'm treading on you in any way, things that you want to talk about. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Um, okay, so for some parts of the vocals, such as the midsection, Freddie would sing over his own tape delays played back into his headphones, allowing him to harmonise with himself in the studio, right? The same tape delay trick that we talked about with Brian's guitar solo in Brighton Rock back in season one. So... Um, so the way this worked was so Brian explained this uh, I started messing around on the guitar and discovered that if I played a note and then the repeat came back to me I could play along with that note and then another repeat you would build up three part harmonies that way and you could build up a counterpoint and you could do rhythmic things which were fascinating so the thought came along wouldn't it be nice to apply this to vocals as well I did some demos of singing oh people can you hear me and worked it out I then chopped up the demo so we had a continuous demo for Freddie and then Freddie liked it so we put Freddie in the studio and he did it live with these delays Roy Thomas Baker said yeah Freddie started off singing in the centre and then the first delay starts to the left and the second delay goes to the right and then he could sing and make three part harmonies just by harmonising with himself as it comes back around to his headphones which sounds crazy just reading that out Um, but Freddie I've got this little YouTube clip of Freddie performing a version of the song live at Earl's Court in 1977 and you can hear him messing around live with this three delay thing. Oh, people, can you hear me? People, can you hear me? Oh, <laughs> 
it goes on. It's, it's amazing. It's incredible. He goes into uh, uh, a little bit of take my breath away and stuff. You should check it out. It's awesome. Well, I was just going to say what's extraordinary about that is it's it's basically it's exactly what Brian does when he does mm. his Brighton Rock solo, yeah. but with a vocal yeah. part as opposed to a guitar part. And so Brian. Mm. You, you made the point that Brian can't make a mistake when he's doing that because you will hear the mistake three times, <laughs> right? And so Freddie's well, it, having to it's do incredibly, yeah, yeah, it's incredibly stressful for mm. anyone to be in that situation because a, a guitarist, especially, and singers as well, if you hit a wrong note, there are ways you can style it out, and with a guitar, if you if you you can bend up or you can you can sort of slide up and cover that maybe only a sort of guitar expert might know you'd made an error. But when you're like that, you you really can't. As someone who experimented it with it live on stage in their teens uh, will know, it it really requires quite a good knowledge of the uh, the electric guitar. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so you've tried, have you? Yes, it was described by uh, the, he- the headline actors, technically interesting. <laughs> Oh, that's not even kind. Um, yeah, go on, Suze. What, what did you think to see Fred do it? Because he's just um, doing it for fun. Life. Yeah, that's crazy. I've, I mean, I can't get my head around. Uh, there's some comedians do it, and there are um, pop musicians as well who do it with the pedal. That like Rob Deering them. does it, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's amazing. I can't get my head around it. That wasn't even Freddie's thing. That's not even his thing, and he's kind of doing it there it it's um yeah the the audacity but i like that because what i like about queen one of the aspects of them that makes them unusual in pop and rock is they quite nerdy all four of them they so they so this is kind of like music nerd heaven to be able to do that on stage must have been really exciting Yeah, they were students yeah. of the form. They yeah, I doubt guys. that that whole midsection of Prophet's song probably wouldn't exist if they had recorded it on Queen Two. They're like, mm. uh, yeah, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll and books, <laughs> books as well, please. And, and <laughs> maths. <laughs> and probably not so much drugs. This song would have. Yeah, um, this song must have blown people's minds when they first got it on vinyl. They end with Seaside Rendezvous and then flip the record over and it oh. begins with this wind noise and that kind of... Um, beautiful. The guitar doesn't... Get, you don't know what it's going to be mm. until the song's been going a few seconds. Like You don't know what you're about to get. And Freddie opens with that... Um, oh! On, and it's, it's slightly higher than you'd expect, but it's also slightly lower than you'd expect. So right. he's not hitting you in the face with a huge belt. He's also not starting on a easy part of the voice and it just makes the whole song open with this what what are you giving me here what's this now yeah. uh, it's, it's so exciting i'd never i'd never i i knew this was the beginning of side two but i'd never really thought about it from uh the point of view of someone buying it in 75 until i uh, until, until we came here and <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah 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 but yeah it's that amazing. must have been wackadoo for people flipping the record over it's so ambitious isn't it Mm. you know this is this this is why they're using 24 tracks and spending all this money and um uh uh, we would be doing the song a disservice if we didn't listen to a tiny bit more of it i think and then we'll 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 move on to the Mm. next track but um i want to i wanted to just play um 
uh, just sort of from the end of that choral bit, actually, into Brian just being going bonko on the guitars and hearing a bit of that, and that's all right. I just wanted to include that last little bit there because uh, years before the edge, Brian was already doing the YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so good, so good. And then it's this beautiful little strain from the beginning of that song that then goes beautifully into yes. "Love My Life." You should totally check that out. It's amazing. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing piece of work. And that um, whole guitar solo is underrated. Like people, are, I should, people I should point it. out in case anyone was raging earlier when I said it may contain wah, it, it's more likely to be a flanger. Um, just looking at the technical list of equipment they used, uh, it could have been an Eventide FL 2001, uh, 201 flanger or, or it could have been um, an MXR phaser flanger. Yeah. We just don't know. But I think that's too what we, we didn't want to contradict either. you, John. So. <laughs> it's too late. They'll already have social mediaized us. <laughs> they will have done it before they got to you saying this bit. Uh, but no, fair play to you, man. This is such a crazy vocal. But I don't think it gets talked about that much. It's insane. If And I think anyone who likes to sing along to stuff in their car to appreciate what an insane vocal it is just like try and sing along to the i see no day i heard him say here's a face on every mortal it's bananas but it doesn't sound hard because it's freddy but like just go away and try and sing along to that bit and not damage yourself (laughs) (laughs) it's insane Oh, that's man. not where a voice should sound like it's sitting like a male voice should not sound like it sits around it's all a b's and c's and it's that's where the voice should be breaking and he, he just isn't that's it right. they, you know they could they could you know they're writing the songs they could put these 
make it easier for themselves. Mm. But Which you can tell always... he does singing it live. Right. Like, you want to rely on <laughs> singing yeah. around your direct break. You know, right. having just sung something that's in a completely different part of the voice, right. a song that's in a different part of the voice. So, yeah. Uh, uh, oh, man. But it, in the it, studio... It's really cool to revisit. In the studio, they're interested in pushing those limits and, and, and yeah. enabling you to hear things that you wouldn't hear otherwise, you know? They, that's it. They, and they you can just be, be like, oh, I'll just be dropped in at that bit and then you can just do that one bit. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's such a cracker's vocal. Beautiful stuff. Well... It is now time for the future point of the show that we like to call Robin Says! <laughs> it's a John Robbins takeover of Simon Says. John, what have you got for us, old B? Well, I was uh, deep into YouTube one night listening to uh, an interview Brian gave with the fan club in the early 80s. And it's just him sat in their office with Jackie... And she's asking him fan question after fan question after fan question. And taken as a piece, it's about an hour long. And I think it really shows how much the band cared about maintaining their listenership uh, and maintaining their fan base and having that really sort of personal contact with their fans. And it just struck me that I don't know any other musician. I'm sure they have, but somebody sits on a sofa and answers questions for the best part of an hour. But one of them interested me, and it was a question about what music Brian listened to when he was a kid. And I I sort of Googled the, the tracks he mentioned, and I thought they would be an interesting counterpiece to A Night at the Opera, because I think this is the album at which their, their sort of artistic skills were at their absolute peak. Mm. And one of the bands, especially that he mentioned, reminded me so much of stuff off A Night at the Opera. So I, I've just collated uh, three clips that uh, producer Giles has kindly um, uh, sort of edited and clipped for me. I just thought I'd take you through what Brian was listening to as a child that may have uh, influenced his sound throughout the years. Because it's easy to talk in terms of like what guitarists he liked. But I think also the sort of music we're around when we're children has a big part in the same way that Queen did on us, Mm. um, has a big part on the sort of sounds that we go for. So the first thing we're going to hear is a band called Temperance Seven, uh, who were a seven part sort of brass band, basically, or woodwind band in a sort of jazz style. But when Brian would have been around sort of seven or, no, maybe nine or ten, they were actually at number one in the charts with this song, which I think is called You Drive Me Crazy. Is that right, Giles? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought we could hear a section of this and just keep in mind the more sort of vaudeville theatrical tracks off this album, like Good Company and Seaside Rendezvous, when you listen to something Brian cited as a big influence on him growing up. You left me sad and lonely Why did you leave me lonely? Cause here's a heart that's only for Nobody but you so if that's not the little orchestra Brian's trying to recreate yeah. with his guitar alone, I don't know what it is. Mm. Certainly Freddie's sort of referring that to that style of yeah. singing. 
Yeah, totally. But I just thought it was interesting that that was number one. <laughs> so sort of 15 years later, 14 years later, I think it was 61 or 62, that was number right. one. So to how far sort of popular music came over the course of that decade, because that now to us sounds like, well, that could have been done in the 20s or the yeah, 30s, sounds, but that was, like the nostalgia that was a 60s rule. UK number one. Yeah, yeah. that's like a 30 years ago nostalgia song. It sounds like something that would be in one of the Marx Brothers films. Yeah. yeah. They, had a, they had musical numbers that sounded just like that, yeah. But also what was clear is how much classical music was still the staple of, of kids' music, uh, when when the band were growing up. So the, the other thing that Brian mentioned was this kids request show uh, where, where you you wrote in with the song you wanted to hear. And he said the one that was played most that he vividly remembers was a, a classical musician called Mantovani. And he had a thing called, it was Mantovani's Magic Orchestra. Um, and I, I think Brian described it as Mantovani's Magical Strings. Um, and the song that was played most was this thing called Charmaine. I'm pretty sure that's sorry. I've, I've left my notes in my warmer house uh, <laughs> where okay, I am no you. longer. But it's Mantovani's Magical Strings. So this is a clip from um, Charmaine. that was something Brian would definitely have been listening to as a kid Mm. Um, and the final thing is uh, an American uh, sort of kids radio show called Sparky's Magic Piano which is based around the premise of this boy called Sparky who has to learn the piano but isn't very good and one day his his mum leaves the room after his lesson and his piano starts to speak to him and the piano plays the songs that Sparky wants to be able to play. And it's so Brian, when you hear the voice of the piano, it's sort of like slightly science fiction-y, robot voice. But I could just imagine Brian as a kid thinking, oh my God, imagine if your piano could talk to you and play all the songs for you. So even though it's classical music, this is another thing in that interview with Jackie that he referenced as being something he consumed a lot of as a, as a child. All right, I'm sitting on the piano stool and my hands are on the keys. What do I do now? Run your hands over my keys. Why, I'm playing just like my teacher. No, I'm playing for you. So there you go. I I thought that they all had a little bit of a night at the opera in them. Those mm, clips. You know what? Um, that, um, that last one, that voice, is almost exactly what you hear. I think is it in Constantinople in the middle of Roger Taylor's Fun in Space album? Was it straight? I think it's Fun in Space. Where you get that sort of robot voice. It's almost exactly <laughs> exactly that sound. Hmm. Great spot. Thank you. <laughs> Sparkling so, yeah. magical piano. What year was that? 
Uh, I think that's late 50s. Oh, right. It's bit, that's got um, an uncredited writer called Cocaine, I believe. That's a, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> way out there. Well, wow. um, if I just thought it, it would be nice having heard him mention those to actually hear what they sound like because sometimes musicians sort of reel off all their influences mm. and you don't actually do the digging to to find out well whether what they remind you of in the music that they put out so if anyone wants to check that out if you just sort of google brian may fan club interview you will hear not only his answers to that question but a, a really exhaustive mm. interview um where he really thinks about every answer and he's incredibly humble and you just think he didn't he didn't need to do that. He yeah. didn't need to sit in the office for an hour and mm. answer questions. But I think it's those little things, a bit like the handwritten notes yeah. that were sent out to people, that is why Queen fans value the band and their music so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're rewarded. They are deeply rewarded. They they are cared about. Uh, Brilliant. Should we get? Uh, so that was good, wasn't it, Simon? Yeah, thank you, John. Good, John. good well that. done, John. Good. Robin <laughs> says we're going to have to have a chat, Simon, afterwards about whether. How we move forwards. Okay. So. <laughs> I think it's very clear. Let us get back to the works with Love of My Life, which was uh, uh, written by Freddie Mercury. It's 3 minutes 39. And um, it's it's fair to say this is one of the most... It was technically released as a, a single. I'll get onto that in a bit. But um, it's certainly one of, one of the most famous Queen songs that isn't a you know, uh, greatest hits album. Uh, song, uh, but Freddie never publicly said uh, who the song was about, saying in one interview, there isn't any real connection between the music and my life. Love of my life, for instance, I simply made up. There's nothing personal about it. However, many people consider the song to be about Mary Austin, but that is other people. Freddie would never say that. Um, so let us listen to a little bit of Love of My Life. You'll have heard it. We use it as a bit of a sting in the show anyway, but let's listen to a bit. Simon, talk to us about love of my life. Well, I thought, I, listening to this again in, in preparation for this, and um, I'd forgotten that it was played on piano on this because I've heard it mm. so many times on guitar. Mm. And the, it was so it was a nice to be reminded of, of that you got Freddie's brilliant piano playing on it as well. But it, it reminded me actually of um, something that John's mentioned before that there are certain things about Queen that it's it's really hard. To, to look at them and appreciate them without thinking of the prism of what they've come to mean you know in the history of Queen rather than at the moment and I think this is one of those those songs because this song has come to mean so much to, to Queen fans and you know I've got memories of seeing Brian on tour in sort of 92 you know when he went out with the Brian May band and he'd do this moment and, and now when you see the, well, you know, subsequent with with Paul Rogers and now with Adam, when Brian comes out and does this, it's such a moment for Queen fans to come together and remember 
Freddie, you can't help but listen to this song and not get emotional. Mm. But that's because of what's come later, rather. And so I'm trying to imagine what it was like for people listening to this song in 1975 without all that baggage. Yeah. And it's still an incredibly beautiful and moving song. But mm. you're right, it's become part of the Queen legend, as it were, um, as a result. But because of how we associate it with Freddie. I was mm. trying to um, think about why exactly why the song always now makes me cry. And it is simply because uh, Freddie has become the love of my life that hmm. I'm missing, that he's singing about. It's it's him. Hmm. And I can't even say it. <laughs> normally I'm a cynical comedy producer type. But no, this one gets me every time. And it's because I miss him. Uh, mm. Yeah, yeah, and the lyrics are just so resonant and wow. I well, I not not nearly as emosh, uh, but <laughs> but yeah, um, this song live becomes something else entirely, and it's because it becomes because um, it's totally for the audience when it's live, as it always is with Freddie is, and it always was with Queen and it becomes like this intimate affair but for tens of thousands of people and that's that's what makes it such a unique song other bands would love to have a song like that I'm sure um, they kind of did it by accident but the studio version is you can appreciate what a technical marvel it is I think it's one of my favourite piano performances of Freddie's like he does these incredible um, uh, ornamental piano trills on it that sound like they could be played by any like top classical musician mm. um and he's quite loose with the tempo of it yet it's like bang on the piano's relatively straight throughout and then he's singing over it with these syncopated phrases but it never sounds jarring because it's it's such a technically amazing song and i love the it's i call it i've written down it's subtly ostentatious harp ending that's the only way I could describe <laughs> it. Um, I want to know who that is playing the harp, and I wanted, I wondered if anyone knew who was uh, yeah, playing the harp on this. I do. do know. I ah. do know. I do know. I've got a couple of quotes for you. One is it Brian on his guitar? Freddie. Is that what I'm so, going to find out now? <laughs> it, is, it is the only Queen song to feature an orchestral harp. Mm -hmm. uh, and when asked by On The Record in 1982 whether he'd learned to play the harp, Brian said, learning would be too strong a word. I did it chord by chord. Actually, it took longer to tune the thing to, than to play it. It was a nightmare because every time someone opened the door, the temperature would change and the whole thing would just go out. I <laughs> would hate to have to play the harp on stage. I just figured out how it worked, the pedals and everything, and did it bit by bit. That's amazing. Well, and then there on we the go. piano Sorry. side of things... Oh, I didn't learn it. I just learned <laughs> to play it. That's, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and in terms of uh, the fact that we often forget that it's a piano piece, uh, because mm. they do... Yeah, Brian... Um, and Freddie would do it with an acoustic 12, uh, 12 string on, on, on live performances. Mm. Um, but um, in an interview with Melody Maker in 1981, Freddie explained that the song is adapted on stage for the guitar, but it was written on the piano. I've totally forgotten the original, and if you asked me to play that now, I couldn't. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I have to go back to the music sheet, and I can't read that well either. <laughs> so that whole disposable pop attitude that he's got to this beautiful song that we all treasure he's like oh yeah yeah it was on piano it's on guitar now it's fine. <laughs> it's amazing. I, th I think that um queen's best love songs are the ones that are in the sort of um first person so 
I and you as opposed to we and wow. they and us. And I think the reason that Love of My Life is so has such an impact is because it is a direct song to someone from someone. So if you look at what I think like their best love songs are, something like You're My Best Friend, because it is a song from someone to another person, Love of My Life, the same. Can anyone find And the me more general ones. A bit like, so crazy little thing called love. I'm not a, that's more about love than a love song as such. Um, And, uh, you know, too much love will kill you. That's a more Mm. general thing and play the game. But if you sort of, this I think has a a bit of a a sibling in Bijou off of um, Innuendo. Mm. It's It's a direct address to someone. It's not a song that's about how we all fall in love sometimes kind of thing. I think that's perhaps not wanting to uh, disappoint anyone. Well, I'm not a huge fan of Friends Will Be Friends mm. because it seems such a sort of general song about friendship, which is still really lovely, but it doesn't have the power that sort of grasps you by either feeling this song is from you to someone or from someone to you. And I think then when Freddie's on stage singing it to the audience and they're singing it back to him, there's no sort of third person in that in that group, so that's mm-hmm. what for me is one of the that's big an appeals of their uh, love songs. Observation, John. That I'm not convinced mm. we'll stand up to analysis, but I think it's a beautiful point <laughs> because you know I want it all, and we are the champion. Okay, fine, but um, <laughs> but I do I do take I do take your point. I think it, that personal thing, and, and and you guys have mentioned it being sung live. I would love to just play a, a, a little clip. Have you got this, um, Giles? So basically, they, they started playing it live during the News of the World Tour in 1977 and became such a concert favourite that Freddie would frequently stop singing completely and let the audience take over. Uh, and I just thought I'd give us a listen to this uh, for them in Rio, um, just kicking ass. And uh, this is all audience. I mean that's uh, that's rock in Rio in '85, and uh, you know Fred is just conducting the entire stadium. It's unbelievable, and um, interestingly, it was really so. The version that's on Live Killers was released as a single, uh, which didn't do great over here. But um, it after their 1981 tour of South America, it reached uh, number one in their singles charts in Argentina and Brazil, and uh, it remained in the Argentinian charts for an entire year it was huge no. over there wow. so big shout out to our dear south america listeners uh, south american listeners who are probably giving themselves uh, a load of cuddles as we talked uh, talk about um uh, uh, a love of my life and yeah uh, you mentioned um how, you know that they play it live now i mean that last tour when uh, at the end of it brian and gave freddie a fist bump on the screen and it was just amazing it was amazing it was so moving um but you know adam uh when he does his solo tours he'll he'll include love of his uh, love of my life as a little tribute to freddie on his solo tours and Mm. stuff which i think is brilliant um so there we go
Okay, well, as the snow gently falls outside my window to make my uh, balcony look like Roger Taylor's back garden from the uh, uh, We Will Rock You and Spread Your Wings video, <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about uh, the next track on this stunning album, which, uh, well, I'll call it a ditty, but I think it's much more than that. Uh, it's called Good Company. It's by Brian May. It's three minutes and 23 seconds long. Brian provided all the vocals on this track and the song features a, recrea a recreation of a Dixie-style jazz band and all the jazz instruments come from Brian on the Red Special with the Deaky amp. Now I'm old, I puff my pipe, but no one's there to see. Ponder on and listen all my life's insanity. I love this track. <laughs> I love it so much. Um, yeah, I'm going to just uh, come in here with a, a couple of quotes from Brian on the song about that jazz influence. And I think this is what you were talking a little bit about, um, John, earlier as well, of his influences. And he said, in 1982, he said, The horn lines on Good Company were done on four kinds of guitars. I was very keen on those days on recreating that sort of atmosphere. I mainly got the sound with small amplifiers. I used John Deacon's little amplifier, amplifier the Deakey amp, and a volume pedal. For the trombone and trumpet sounds, I would record every note individually. Do it, and then drop in. Incredibly painstaking. It took ages and ages. I listened to a lot of traditional jazz music when I was young, so I tried to get the phrasing as it would be if it were played by that instrument, which is crazy. Mm. Right, he recorded every note of that, and mm. you, it just you just assume it's um, trumpets and stuff, but it isn't. It's him. Um, and in 1983, he said, "Yep, it's all guitar, like uh, it's all guitar. All those instruments. That that was a little fetish of mine. I used to listen to <laughs> traditional jazz quite a lot, in particular the 20s revival stuff, which wasn't actually traditional jazz, but more arranged stuff, like the Temperance Seven." who were re recreating, oh. there you go, who were rec recreating something which was popular in the 20s, sort of dance tunes, really. I was very impressed by the way those arrangements were done, you know, the nice smooth sound and those lovely changes between chords, because they were much more rich in chords than most modern songs are. So many chord changes in sh a short time, lots of intermingling parts. So I wanted to do one of those things, and the song just happened to come out while I was plunking away at the ukulele, and the song itself was no trouble to write at all. But actually, doing the arrangements for the wind section, as it was supposed to be, there's a guitar trumpet and a guitar clarinet and a guitar trombone and a sort of extra thing. I don't really know what that was supposed to be, and he chuckles on the top. I spent a lot of time doing those, and to get the effect of the instruments, I was doing one note at a time with a pedal and building them up. So you can imagine how long it took. We experimented with the mics and various little tiny amplifiers to get, this, uh, to get just 
the right sound. So I actually made a study of the kind of things that those instruments could play so it would sound like those and get the authentic flavour. It was a bit of fun, but it was a serious bit of work and that a lot of time went into it. That's what I'm talking about, like a little ditty mm. with an enormous, crazy <laughs> amount of effort behind it. It's unbelievable. Mm. <laughs> and like decades of history. Yeah. I did a, uh, a friend of mine has a Beatles podcast called Your Own Personal Beatles. And he, 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 they, they'd never asked me to go on it because I don't particularly like the Beatles. Um, but... Uh, they did for a Christmas special where we got drunk and the whole thing basically turned into who's better, Queen or the Beatles, which is such a stupid <laughs> argument to have, but it was a fun one to have. Um, and this was one of the songs I sent to the producer and presenter, Jack, to listen to. Basically, I, I picked some Beatles-y Queen songs sure. um, to try and find the Beatles' influence in Queen because they are a huge influence on the band, mm. especially on mm. Brian and Freddie. Uh, they sort of worshipped uh, the Beatles. And I think this has got a bit... Of, obviously, the big influences, the ones you've discussed, and also sort of George Formby and that sort of thing. But I think there is that Beatles sense of the absurd in this song as well, um, especially on albums like uh, kind of the White Album and stuff. It's got stuff. that sort of octopus's garden feel, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah, and it's just a, such a very British... Um, sense of humour like we were talking about last time mm. that sort of BBC Radio Python-esque tongue-in-cheek absurdism and I, I think there's a bit of that going on here as well and I, I think that's what um, Paul McCartney likes uh, about Queen mm. though I suspect he's not quite as big a Queen fan as they were Beatles fans. No, he doesn't have to be he's Paul McCartney. <laughs> no, yeah <laughs> Can I ask a question how, why why doesn't Freddie sing this? If Freddie had sung this and not Brian, then it would have fit into Seaside Rendezvous and, and Lazing on a Sunday Afternoon as, a, as more of a trilogy across the whole album. Do you know, anyone know why Brian chose to sing this? I would imagine that this is a song that in Brian's head is so firmly to do with his dad and the music that they played as a kid when he first got a ukulele, when he first sort of made his own rudimentary sort of um, skiffle-type guitars... I, I think that this is so much about his childhood that I, I think Freddie would either have let him had it or not had the option. <laughs> That's um, a really good answer, John. Makes uh, sense, yeah. It does. There, there, are, there are things here that remind me of elements of Father to Son lyrically in, uh, on Queen 2. Uh, there, there's good advice here. There's, it's, it's about advice being passed down the generation. It's got that little cat's of the cradle feel to it. And uh, I think... You know, I often wonder uh, that what's the choice for when Brian's going to take the lead on a vocal or Roger's going to take a lead on the vocal. And I think it's a decision based around what's right for the song. Um, mm. And Br Brian's voice is softer, I think, than Freddie's. Freddie has that, you know, he brings so much to it. But, um, uh, yeah, it doesn't need the Freddie treatment, this song. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right. I think also Brian's voice gives it a slight air of melancholy that would probably be lost mm. if it was Freddie. Because that, I mean, that orchestra orchestra bit at the end is so fantastic, such an insane effort to create a sound you could have just hired. You could have hired the Temperance <laughs> Seven and they could have done that in a couple of takes. Cheaper. Yeah. 
but I think about Brian, it's perhaps more of the craft of making a song in the same way that when he wanted a guitar, he didn't buy it, he made it. Yeah. Mm. He calls it a fetish. Well, something about the craft of actually, actually constructing the sounds of this song himself. And I bet it felt to him a bit like a project he would he would have done with his dad. Yeah, yeah. And I think Freddie would have made it. It would have just sounded too camp with Freddie. Yeah, then it becomes Theatrical. more pastiche. Yeah. Nice. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, I think this is more homage than pastiche. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The song doesn't need a um, a showman. I think. But I, mm. I, do you know what? Queen Pod at the Queen dot com, please. Just send us an email. Let us know what you think. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, how do you feel about uh, songs where Freddie isn't doing the lead vocal? Do you prefer those songs when they're sung live with Freddie belting them out? Yeah, I would love to hear. Um, it's always a fascinating question. For they are a band of fascinating questions, uh, yeah. of which that was one. Thank you, producer Giles. That was great. Yeah. This song, because f- f- it, it, obviously it's a nostalgia piece, but you, it like it feels like Bakelite and <laughs> margarine. <laughs> so, yeah. so, but that it gives. I wasn't around um, for the period that this is um, harking back to. I wasn't around for that, but you feel like you were through this mm-hmm. song. So oh, it actually, makes you feel a nostalgia yeah. for something none of us experienced. Well, except for also, Simon. it's worth. Worth saying, like you said last time, the the, dif- the difference in time between this and what it's playing homage to is probably the difference between now and two thousand five. Yes. So it's a bit like yeah. so, it's a bit like someone releasing a song that arcs back to the the Strokes' second album, <laughs> Halo by Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, true. I think it's it's such a well placed track on the album as well. Like we only have four songs on this side of the album five of you include the um, the anthem at the end and um you know you've got prophet songs is huge number love of my life which is a big ballad and then we're about to get to one of the biggest songs ever written in history of pop music um and we have this light music hall kind of vaudeville little playful thing that is jaunty and upbeat and a little bit shorter than all the well, a lot shorter than all the rest and it's just a lovely little amuse-bouche right in the middle of the second half, which I think it's really needed at that point as well. Otherwise, it's, um, you know, it doesn't have... It, you lose the playfulness that they had on the first half of the album without this, I think. Mm. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And it's such it's good sad, advice. Though. It's very oh, sad, yeah. though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of... It is It is hidden in a, as you say, a very jaunty yeah. sort of Dixieland thing, but... When you think about it, there's a lot of regret in there mm. at, the, at the end. Yeah, it's like somebody to love. Yeah, the lyrics of that are devastating, and it, and it, yes. but it's like the ultimate joyous anthem to sing. Which is why, yeah. if they did like a yeah, if they did a John Lewis version of Good Company, it'd be horrible. Yeah. <laughs> devastating. Yeah. Let's hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> I think some of the songs, if you look at the songs that Brian is picked or chooses to sing on something like leaving home and easy mm. in freddie's hands that would be a very very different song mm. Mm. um whereas in brian's hands it does he does often feel like he's sort of got the world on his shoulders mm. and i think mm. that's that that brings something to the song that freddie and i mean roger couldn't sing this song mm. um so they do have their own 
mm. sort of uh, uh, characteristics of their voices. Yeah, it's very true. And it, it, yeah, that melancholy comes from the idea of someone starting their life uh, and then getting up to the point where they've had a very successful life and they own their own limited company and everything, but their wife, they lose their wife over, from mm. having dedicated themselves too much to work and miss the point that actually, you know, it's, it's basically saying just um, appreciate the people around you, which is a... Um, I'm running up again. <laughs> I've been on my own in a flat for a year, guys. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, uh, again, this is such a... It's incredible how, how these tunes in 2021 are just as relevant as ever, and they will always yeah. be relevant. Those themes are mm. profound. They absolutely. are timeless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All right. Well, let us do a quick news of the world. Come on, We've got just a tiny bit of news uh, this week, not a huge amount. And obviously, if you want... Real Queen News, we encourage you to use the internet, which will be much more up-to-date than this. However, just to note and celebrate that uh, uh, on the 29th of January 2021, live around the world, the concert film became available for digital download and rent. So if you don't want a hard copy of that, you can just um, Amazon Prime it or other platforms are available. Um, uh, And on the 2nd of February 2021, Brian and Roger gave uh, brand new interviews for February's edition of Classic Rock in their 14-page cover feature, The Gold Standard, uh, with a quote, Brian May and Roger Taylor look back at 50 years of Queen, the incredible journey of four young musicians with an insane confidence and precocious belief in their own unique talents who conquered the world. So, <laughs> yeah, man, grab that. Absolutely grab that. And we should also probably mention, Simon, um, you gave us a lovely thing from Record Collector magazine in our little break between season one and season two. Uh, some chap at Record Collector said, yep, I'm interviewing Brian and Roger. Do any of your listeners have any questions? And we put a little message out on our social media, um, uh, our Facebook page and, uh, 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 you know, uh, whatever the rest of that social media nonsense is. And uh, and they got so many lovely questions. They were really happy. I don't know, actually, Simon, you should probably tell us a bit about that because I... No, you're, you're absolutely yeah. right. They got lots of questions, which they were thrilled by and um, led to, apparently, two fantastic interviews with, with both Brian and Roger, who um, really enjoyed getting some more unusual uh, questions than the ones they normally get. So, well done, fans. Yeah, man. Um, but, yeah, that's going to be a big, in March, I believe, big bumper Comes out in March, in okay. Data. I believe our very own John Robbins has contributed a piece to that as well. Um yeah, I, I, they asked me to write the sort of um, intro, uh, the sort of like editor's intro article, which is very, very sweet. As someone who clung on to their copies of Record Collector as a kid, looking through for listings of blue and purple coloured Bohemian Rhapsody vinyl that I would never be able to afford just to sort <laughs> of just to see it. Uh, it's a, a huge honour to be able to do that. But um, quite a scary task being the being the voice of the opening of the Queen's special edition. <laughs> oh, John, that's so cool that you got to do that. And yeah, it is that's it is brilliant. brave, man. That is, that is cool. So yeah, look out for that. Uh, so that was News of the World.
Okay, let's get back to the works then. Uh, what have we got next? Oh, uh, is this five minute fifty five second song by Freddie Mercury called Bohemian Rhapsody? <laughs> How about? Um, okay, look, there's a lot that's been said about this song over the years. So we are going to, I think we're probably going to uh, do a special on Bohemian Rhapsody at some point. There's no doubt about it. Um, But uh, for the purposes of this podcast, I think it is very difficult to consider Side B of Night of the Opera without discussing Bohemian Rhapsody somewhat. So the single was released on the 31st of October 1975 with I'm in Love With My Car as its B-side. And by the end of January 1976, it had sold over one million copies and it topped the UK singles chart for nine weeks. It hit number one on the week beginning the 23rd of November 1975, for which I have the chart run down. We interested? At number 10. (laughs) Okay. At number 10, Space Odyssey 1975 by David Bowie. Uh, nine, Sky High by Jigsaw. Nope. Eight, Right Back Where We Started From by Maxine Nightingale. No idea. Um, seven, I'm, I hope these people aren't listening. Seven, number seven, This Old Heart of Mine by Rod Stewart. And number six, Imagine by John Lennon. I mean, these are big tracks, right? Mm. Number five, Money Honey by the Bay City Rollers. Number four, Love Hurts by Jim Capaldi. Uh, number three, D-I-V-O-R-C-E by Billy oh. Connolly. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. At number two, just being kept off the number one spot, You Sexy Thing by Hot Chocolate. A huge oh. trap. And at number one, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. My God, what an amazing thing. And of course, it did chart again for another five weeks in 91 uh, uh, as a double A side with These Are the Days of Our Lives. Mm. Um, and interestingly, in that chart rundown, where, where there was a bit of Cliff Richard and Right Said Fred and Black and White by Michael Jackson and uh, Living Let Die from Guns N' Roses was in there but at number 6 in that same week do you know who was at number 6 that week? Mr Brian May with Driven By You Driven By You oh, two bites at the cherry from, 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 from the legends there um, and it's the only single to have been Christmas number 1 twice with the same version in both 1975 and 91 oh, that's interesting Just to, can I add a quick note on the sales? yeah mm. So there's this extraordinary website called Chartmasters. And basically the, the premise of Chartmasters is to to try and even out the sales of all songs and albums across digital streaming and physical copies. And what they do is they try to extrapolate uh, album sales into streams and streams back into album sales in a, in a, in a thing called um, Commensurate Sales to Popularity Concept, (laughs) giving you a figure called Equivalent Album Sales. So basically they're saying, how do you compare a a Taylor Swift song that's been streamed 500 million times with a Queen song that was number one for nine weeks? Mm. And they found a way to do this. So you basically get to give albums scores based on how many sales the songs from that album had as singles on compilations via their streams and all that stuff and you do the reverse with the popularity of uh, albums uh, singles based on their albums etc 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 so it's incredibly complicated and i can't explain it here but the section on queen is so amazing it's got such a great deep dive and the 
what uh, I want to draw people's attention to is that given that the, this website has done this across all artists and all singles, you then get figures where you can compare al- uh, album and single sales across the generations, and there is an all-time top 100. And um, Bohemian Rhapsody is number six on that list. Wow. With an equivalent sales figure of thirty-two point two four million. Wow! Right. Ab- above it, the only songs that are above it are "Every Breath You Take" by The Police, "I Will Always Love You" by Whitney Houston, mm. "Billie Jean" by Michael Jackson, "Hotel California" by The Eagles, and "My Heart Will Go On" by Celine Dion, which is number one. Right. Wow. So, if you want to have a day on a website <laughs> where you basically <laughs> compare Queen's digital sales with their album sales with all their other sales i mean it's worth um sort of just looking at how bohemian rhapsody has done on streaming sites it's quite extraordinary some of the figures Mm. um it has done okay so spotify 1.16 billion streams uh genie 28 million these are different sort of streaming versions youtube 2 billion uh, a thing called Ziami, 9 million, but that gives it an equivalent um, album sales of 1.478 billion. Wow. Wow. So uh, do do check out um, chartmasters.org mm. for a deep dive into comparing um, sort of streams and stuff, because it's a problem the charts had to, had to find a way around. They had to have an algorithm for equi- equ- equivalent streams versus sales but mm. it's, it's well worth checking out just to realize quite how dominant bohemian rhapsody is Amazing. yeah i've got a i've got a couple more stats along those lines if you'll indulge me um uh, it's the official the uk official charts third best-selling song of all time in terms of both physical and download sales sales um uh, and the only songs that have beaten it uh, do they know it's Christmas by Band Aid at number two and something about the way you look tonight slash Candle in the Wind 97. Uh, Rolling Stones readers voted Freddie's vocal performance as the greatest in rock history in 2017. And following the release of the film in 2018, it replaced Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana as the most streamed song from the 20th century. Now, I don't know if these figures are correct because it sounds like, John, you've got even bigger figures than I have here, but I've got 1.6 billion streams across platforms like... Uh, YouTube and Spotify. So listen, everyone knows this song, but let us listen to a little bit of it, uh, which is going to include something pretty cool. Gotta leave you all behind and fade 
to the opera bit. What a track. Uh, and the reason I included that bit is because guitarworld.com has proclaimed that the number one guitar solo of all time. Ah. Congratulations, Brian. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so good. Uh, I mean, there's so much to say about this track. Simon? It actually makes me really anxious <laughs> because mm. if I ever sit here fantasising about what it must have been like to be in the band I, I mean I, I know when Suze does she's there with bottles of water and directing you know lorries no, no, into into, uh, into bays and unloading equipment and so forth and, and John's just in the background dropping lyrics into casual conversation um, <laughs> which is great I'm sort of sitting there thinking you know I'm massively in debt and um, we don't have a salary anymore if this all goes wrong we're going to be finished as a band. The dream is over. Mm. I know. Let's do a song called Bohemian Rhapsody. It's got an opera section in the middle and release that. And trust me, that will be the thing that that sends us to, you know, into a, diff- a completely different stratosphere. Mm. And I, it just makes me anxious that they thought that was a good idea. <laughs> Obviously, it was a stroke of genius and is is hugely successful because it, you, I, I, I don't know how you fault it. I don't know where you find fault in, in that because it's the result of incredible talent, incredible hard work. The attention to detail at every moment in that song is off the charts, mm. and then it's it's so bold and different. And you have the conviction to back that, all of that by saying we're going to release it in its entirety the world doesn't know it needs this song but it does and it will come to love it is i just don't understand how four young men could could Mm. come to that conclusion when everyone around them was saying you're mad to do this and yeah it it, it, i just find it staggering and yeah. it makes me really anxious because mm-hmm. I would have been the one the band going seriously guys let's not do this yeah yeah no it's unbelievable you'd you'd have to be almost a psychotic self belief to yeah. to press forward and make that happen and then be yeah. proved right so that no one could ever tell you otherwise ever again you know no. incredible what a win yeah but the stakes were massively weighed against them the odds was massively weighed, weighed against them on this um, but, but every song? every element of that song every every member of the band has brought you know their a game plus mm. to it i mean the yeah. opera i, mean, I know alone. it's freddie's vision and he had a real clear idea yeah but the touches that brian adds you listen to the bass line from john it's perfect and then the percussion you know that is is uh, is accompanying it is it's so tight and extraordinary mm. um i don't and, and you, you can't say that queen are lucky you, you make your own luck to a certain extent but if there is any luck in queen it's that those four people found each other yeah you know that that someone told roger you should answer this yeah. advert mm. and you know freddie liked them and sort of you know and luck that that tim left and mm. freddie mm. stepped in and and that they went through a few bass players and finding John, it's that's where the luck comes in because quite the, the odds of those four people finding each other and bringing, if any one of those elements is missing, you don't get Bohemian Rhapsody. That's yeah. an extraordinary thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, uh, uh, you mentioned the opera section there. 
which, <clears throat> in a funny sort of way, I think the opera section slightly gets glossed over because they don't play it live. You know, it's played in, yeah. you know, and all the rest of it. But it is an insane achievement to make that work a piece of opera that you know the the standard response if you talk to anyone on the street was oh do you like opera i'd say 95 percent of the time they'll say no <laughs> but yeah. if you go oh do you like the uh you know if you start going scaramouche scaramouche in a pub everyone will be mm. in within yeah. seconds and they all do a voice. Oh yeah, they do. They wouldn't just go. They would just do their. Ring. They'd go. Do you do the fun? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they do do a voice. Yeah, 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 yeah. You've got everyone loves doing the Bismillers. <laughs> absolutely everyone. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You're you're absolutely right. And the, the operatic section is, as we've heard many times, is an extraordinary sort of feat of engineering, yeah. if nothing else. Um, but there is. I would urge you to go to the Queen YouTube channel and you'll find on there um, about a half an hour video called Inside the Rhapsody that has Brian sat at the mixing desk uh, with um, longtime Queen engineer Justin Shirley Smith and um, they've got the original multi-track from Bohemian Rhapsody and Brian talks you through the whole song and basically dissects as best you can now because so many of the tracks were bounced onto tracks to sort of make it work so a lot of the little elements no longer exist because they were they they were bounced onto another track and then that track was you know re-recorded and so mm. forth um but it is extraordinary when you hear him and i i just clipped a bit out to share with you now yes, which please. is brian talking about how they worked on the the harmonies in um in this uh, in the operatic section particularly the thunderbolt and lightning bit Now there you have <laughs> the three of us um, pretending to be girls, really. <laughs> the female part of the choir. <laughs> it sounds pretty weird on its own, but of course it, it all makes sense in, in the structure of the harmonies. Let's try the next track. Scaramouche, scaramouche, will you do the fandango? Lightning, very, very frightening me. So we would probably have done that three times. This one too, to see what's on here. This would be another part. Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening me. So there we are, sounding like boys. So we did sometimes, um, and that's a lower line. Some of these lines are kind of strange tunes, and that's what happens when you're doing complicated harmonies. And these things are quite tricky, because that's not a kind of tune that you would normally sing. You know, tunes go up and down. This goes... It's very moving around little semitones at a time, very tricky. Let's try this. So those two tracks are two versions of the same line, and that's normally what we do. We would sing, three of us would sing the line once, double it, in other words, do the same thing again, and then probably triple it. So you have three tracks of us all singing the same line, and only then do you move on to the next part. So all these would have been here, although some of them have disappeared because other things got written over them. But they've all been bounced, and the bounce is over there. Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening me, all bounce together, sounds like this. Scaramouche, scaramouche, will you do the fandango? Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening me. Oh, it's quite extraordinary, wow. isn't it? So cool. That is but, cool. But he goes on to talk about all the elements, but also how he built the guitars up, um, 
you know how the bass line is done he talks a lot about how Roy Thomas Baker had a really specific way of recording bass guitar so you're getting three different microphones working on it to, you know it's all it's fascinating it is well worth a listen because um a watch because um it, it's almost like an adventure for him to go back through it and, and remember how it was done um but yeah it's extraordinary I think we'll, we'll we'll come back to this because there's so much to talk about about this song, you know, from Chris Smith, Freddie's old friend at Ealing College, talking about uh, uh, Freddie playing elements of a song called the Cowboy Song with the lyrics, Mama mm. just killed a man back in the 60s. You know, we've got um, like how they created the track, of course, that uh, that sort of reaction to their, to their peers and all the people saying, what do you mean you're going to re- release this as a single? You've got the... Um, the actual performance of that single you've got um the video to talk about you know and we've <laughs> yeah, got um yeah. uh, you know uh, how they started to play it live and initially on the day at the races tour um they would actually play bits of um uh, uh amazingly bits of uh march of the black queen in place of sections of uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, stuff like that. There's so much to talk about so we will definitely come back and revisit Bohemian Rhapsody we have to mm. but what I thought we'd do today um, was talk about the lyrics because uh, I think a big question about a beam in Rhapsody is what does it mean? Um, and uh, Freddie said on the meaning behind the lyrics, he said it's one of those songs which has such a fantasy feel about it. I think people should just listen to it, think about it, and then make up their own minds as to what it says to them. Bohemian Rhapsody didn't just come out of thin air. I did a bit of research, although it was tongue-in-cheek and mock opera. Why not? Um and Brian said on the meaning behind the lyrics, Freddie was a very complex person. Uh, he was flippant and funny on the surface, but he concealed insecurities and problems in squaring up his life with his childhood. He never explained the lyrics, but I think he put a lot of himself into that song. And Roger, on the meaning behind the lyrics, said, the true meaning of the song is fairly self-explanatory with just a bit of nonsense in the middle. <laughs> um, uh, so I thought... I w- but Ro- Roger's also said it's it's quite clearly... a a song about it's Freddie's coming out song. I think that was the mm. phrase he used. I don't think he meant that Freddie intended it as that or even thought of it as that, but it's clearly someone dealing with identity and a plurality of voices and influences in their, in their sort of coming of age. Yeah. I like to, I like to sort of see it as that now to, to just ground the song in some kind of reality somewhere that it is someone wrestling with you know guilt and death and rebirth and other people's uh attitudes towards them and freedom and being imprisoned and all of those things in in this wonderful mock opera yeah hmm. it, well, how long after uh, freddie died did they re-release it it was literally weeks wasn't mm. it mm. um yeah because it was christmas number one mm. that, that december mm-hmm. yeah yeah, so literally with, within a month they'd made the decision to re-release it. And, uh, God, I can't imagine being a Queen fan and Freddie dies and then they re-release Beam and Rhapsody, like the meaning that must have taken on for people who were adults and Queen fans uh, mm. in 91. Well, it was number one by the 15th of December in, in 91. Mm. So literally they, yeah. they released it yeah. pretty much immediately. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I've always had a sort of slight, slightly odd relationship with this song because the sort of young queen nerd in me, whenever it came up, and it does come up so often outside the world of queen, mm. 
you kind of the nerd and you wants to go uh, actually profit songs are slightly more complicated better song <laughs> um but i've i've grown to love how it's got this unique place in everyone's life yes yeah this sort of ridiculous quintessentially british i think song mm-hmm. written by this amazing talent from zanzibar i love that it's sort of unlike any other song and i'm always reminded by what Mitch Benz said, which which really struck me, and I've probably mentioned it before, is that the amazing thing about Bohemian Rhapsody is not that it's a number one single that's six minutes long, it's that it's only six minutes long. Yeah. Because in any other band's hands, this would be a 12-minute long song that would ramble on and would be a sort of prog head's yeah. favourite track, whereas actually to fit so much into a relatively short amount of time. I mean, it's by no means Queen's longest song. It's certainly not the longest number one there's ever been. Mm. It just shows how able they were to get big ideas done in a very concise way, even though it's extraordinarily complex and took an enormous amount of time. In terms of the actual structure and the pacing of the song, no part of it is... And this seems an insane thing to say about... Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, but no part of it is um, indulgent. Mm. It's not an indulgent song. In in fact, it's an incredibly restrained song in yeah. a mad way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, they, I'm sure he could have done five verses at the beginning, but there's two. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah and and he could if, have returned and, and to a full verse, but he doesn't. If you look at similar songs that have a similar place in other bands' back catalogue, like Stairway or Freebird. Mm. Mm. Those songs go on. They mm, ramble. Mm. And that's what's good about Stairway to Heaven. That's why I love it. But it is a rambling ballad. Whereas Bohemian Rhapsody is extraordinarily tight mm. when you think that it's got an a cappella section, it's got a rock section, it's got a operatic section, mm. it's got a theatrical section, <laughs> it it's sections. got an outro, yeah, it's got an yeah, intro. Yeah. It has sections, yeah, true, but yeah. it's not Bohemian Rhapsody Act 1, Bohemian Rhapsody Act 2, Act 3, and that's the first side of an entire album. Yeah. Yeah, and you look yeah. forward to every bit of it. Um, yes. I think um, that... Okay, so, uh, like you, it's not like Bohemian Rhapsody. It's actually my favourite Queen song. In a way, I almost internally roll my eyes whenever it comes up because it's like, yeah, there's so much more to Queen than Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But you're right. I, you know, like, I, I've fallen almost... I, like, I think there were periods of my life where I almost reject it. Um but I, I've I've just brought it back into my life so much more because I've been, it's been taking on these new resonances for me. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very Anglicised. I was born in Britain, um, and a uh, super Anglicised, um, you know, degree in English <laughs> literature and whatnot. So uh, super Anglicised. But um, I was raised by uh, um, uh, parents from India over here, and. Um, I can't I can't speak to what Freddie's putting into the song, but I can certainly speak to what it meant to me. I've been thinking about this a lot about what the lyrics meant to me and why people connect to these lyrics, which is when uh, you're growing up under you know with with, with parents who left quite a strict uh, society and came over here and, and wanted to be progressive but also maintain connection to their heritage particularly for their children 
the result of that in some ways is quite strict. And um, when you cross social lines, which I did a lot, you know, I was always, <laughs> I was the kid caught with porn magazines <laughs> under the chest of drawers or whatever. Um, but, you know, and, and worse. So, uh, you know, whatever reason, I was sort of the first one stuck snogging girls and um i was a lot thinner in those days and uh and more so you know i mean i i, I had a, a child out of wedlock when i was 24 years old and that was that was extremely difficult for my parents to handle they were they suffered socially amongst their group of friends from that from that experience right and so when you do something like that when you transgress um uh, uh, when uh, in that kind of background, it is as good as saying, "Yeah, mum, I've just killed a man. I might as well have just killed a man, right? I've done something as bad as that." Um, and so, when I listen to the song, that is what I am tapping into, and I am mindful of uh, of the fact that Freddie, though he doesn't speak about it much, has the same. You know, Brian mentioned the, the connection to issues in his childhood and stuff. And, you know, I'm mindful of the fact that he got booted out of boarding school. And although we don't know what for, because the family kept very quiet about it, it's maybe not too difficult to imagine what might have happened. It's only conjecture, of course. But, you know, it's a boy at a boarding school who, you know, you, you know, at a, at a fairly certain, at a fairly young age, what your sexual orientation might be. And... Um, you know, you think about how long he's, how long it took him to embrace that orientation, um, and I think uh, for him growing, essentially growing up here culturally. So you know, I guess he was he was a bit older by the time he got got to the UK. Uh, the um, the kinds of things that he was kind of having to resolve culturally with his family while being a superstar rock star <laughs> um, you know the kinds of things that he was having to deal with I think I have felt like right okay there have been periods in my life where I've had to resolve things and my family been amazing I'm not you know disparaging them at all they've been incredibly supportive in lots and lots of ways um, but there, there were huge rifts right so when I you know, that kid thing, like my parents disowned me for a year. <laughs> you know, we've resolved that. It took a while, but we resolved it, you know. Um, these things are huge, I think, if you're coming from an ethnic background. Is sort of what I wanted to say about that. That is what that song means to me. Mm. Well, I think that's a really great uh, insight to have in the song because all, everyone, to maybe to not the extent that Freddie... Uh, and yourself experience, but everyone has those moments of growing up, of saying to their parents, I'm going to do this degree. I'm going to, I'm not going to go to university. I'm going to join the drama club yeah. or I'm going to do this. I'm not doing the, th the the things you want me to do and I'm not being the person you wanted me mm. to be. So it's not just in terms of a sexuality yeah. that it's a coming out song, but it's like a cultural coming yeah. out song. It's a coming of age song. And it is about sort of breaking free from uh, the restraints that, as you say, your your parents have for you with their expectations, but also about battling with those voices because it's not an easy thing to say, I'm doing this, I'm having a kid, I'm gay, I'm, I'm bisexual. And everyone has those little coming-of-age moments where they 
it's about finding out who you are because it's mm. not as simple as going right i'm sat here i'm definitely gay uh, i'm definitely going to be this when i grow up i'm definitely going to hang out with these people you're discovering in real time stuff that you then have to sort of justify to your peers or your friends or your your parents in real time and i think it's it really taps into people's experiences of it it, it also helps that it's an incredibly brilliant song and it's really catchy and it's great to sing along to and it's in Wayne's World and when it's on comic relief newsreaders put on wigs and sing along to it and And the video is so iconic (laughs) it's just got so many things going for it yeah yeah I got about four years ago and I've just found this now in my iPhone notes someone contacted me on Instagram and said I'm writing a book about popular songs and it really annoys me that Bohemian Rhapsody is always number one in all of the charts why isn't this song or that song and I've just found my response which pretty much covers what I want to say about it as a song but I thought I might read it's only a brief iPhone note Um, but I said the main reason Bohemian Rhapsody is such a special case is because it isn't like any other song before or since it stands alone I'm not blind to Queen's shortcomings, and a big one was that they spent so much time in the studio that often when their albums came out, they were slightly behind the times. However, that's not the case with Bohemian Rhapsody. It will never date because it's not of any time. It's also not of any specific genre. So if you compare it to a song like, for example, Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams, which was just as big a song when it came out, that clearly fits the 90s ballad genre, and it dates it. Likewise with Stairway to Heaven, it's classic rock, but listening to Bohemian Rhapsody totally objectively, it still sounds strange, new, experimental and uncategorizable. Because of that, people never tire of it. So when it does pop up, people don't switch off with embarrassment, nor has it been ruined by being consigned to the cheesy or retro category. Every single person will sing along to what is one of the oddest songs ever recorded. It has no chorus and yet more British people know the words to it than any other song ever written. Isn't that something? Wow. Well said. Yeah, wow. brilliant. Yeah. Bravo. Mm. I, yeah. I'm saluting you. <laughs> I'm saluting you for that. That's amazing. Um, yeah, well, uh, what else could be said about Bohemian Rhapsody? So much more! Oh. Have you got some stuff to say? Surely, Suze, this must... What, what does the song mean to you? I did, I did, when I sat down to make my notes for this side of the album, I got to Bohemian Rhapsody and like, there was too much to say, so I just didn't write anything down. Yeah, um, <laughs> But, you know, where do you, where do you even begin? I'm so glad we're going to get to do an episode on it eventually. Um, the most telling thing about Bohemian Rhapsody for me is when Queen was asked to play at Live Aid, there's, it's well documented that there were... Um, kind of a little bit of, I wouldn't even say controversy around the band, but people were a bit ugh about them for various reasons, one of which being Sun City. And so they weren't expected to storm Live Aid, and we've talked about that before, and we it, I, it's no surprise to anyone listening, like, they, they were Live Aid. Um, the fact that they came out to not a Queen crowd, Freddie sits down at the piano and he sort of plays a few chords and t- twiddles with a few knobs on top of the piano, which I guess are to do with his monitor. And then he plays the opening notes of Bohemian Rhapsody and the crowd go berserk and they're not a Queen audience. So a lot is made of, oh, and then everyone was clapping along to Radio Gaga and 
and to We Will Rock You and they weren't even a cream crowd. For me, the it's like such an electrifying moment that he comes out and literally just goes, doom, 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 doom. Before he's even got to those top <laughs> higher notes of that riff, people are going bananas in the crowd. Um, and it makes me like really, <laughs> it makes me really proud to be a Queen fan that that was the reaction of a public who weren't even it's not like these are the headliners it, yeah i think it's really amazing he wins a stadium um, over in, in within about four yeah. or five notes he's won a stadium yeah. over and the planet because they've all just tuned in yeah unbelievable yeah incredible like and what they they estimate an audience of hundreds of millions mm. saw yeah. live aid that's mm. amazing um yeah and i've i've got to sing it um a few times the first time was 1995 at my local comps uh, yearly Let's Face the Music show that we all did. We all did Bohemian Rhapsody as a school. It was a big old rough school. We had a cute, we had a big choir of, of about 100 and, 150 to 200 kids. Like there was no filtration process. If you wanted to be in the show, you just turned up to day one of rehearsals and you could be in the show. And the first thing we were taught, and I was I was 10, I was 10 when I went to secondary school and we learned Bohemian Rhapsody. And um, we had a, we were fortunate enough to have an extremely good head of music at the school. But yeah, like a bunch of kids aged, you know, all under 16, without a second thought, all just learned Bohemian Rhapsody and we sang it, this arrangement that she'd done of it. It was amazing. But my enduring memory of it was there was no guitar solo. It was all played by Mr. Hind on the piano. And when it got to the guitar solo, all the kids just stood still and didn't say anything, didn't sing anything. And Mr. Hind went, doom. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> it was the most on the piano. Was, or he just it was said such, it. Yeah, oh. no, he did it on the piano. <laughs> it, was, it was such a, it was such an anticlimactic <laughs> moment. Um, I bet he was really but, going yeah. for it though. <laughs> <laughs> very, very fond memories of getting to sing as a ten-year-old. I think that's, I think it was really cool. We got to do it, um, but then I got to do it again on like the main stage at Trafalgar Square 10 years ago the big summer show and uh, my class at the Royal Academy we all got to sing it and wow. with a full band and that was amazing like wow. it was really like I was with I was the moved opera by the end of doing the performance yeah we did oh the whole the whole thing and it's in about 16 parts that opera bit so there'd be some bits of it where there's only two of you on one particular line and yeah it's and it it takes a lot of um teaching it like it it was days and days of getting track. it down yeah. so the fact that they put it together in the studio sort of as they went along is just testament wow. to what an incredible no, piece of work it is they are equally you can put musicians. it on as the last song of the night at a wedding and everyone goes ah! and everyone will, will nail it everyone in the room will nail it I think something to add to what Suze is saying about it being a, a song that has an impact for non-Queen fans I love how it is our national anthem yes. I mean it really yes. is mm. yes yeah. and what what an odd national anthem it is and how proud I am of Queen yes. for, for achieving that everyone that has this song in their lives which is basically everyone um, uh, has an ownership of it 
Mm-hmm. Uh, has a di- it's it's a direct con- connection to Freddie and his three phenomenal <laughs> bandmates through that song, and it's just there. It's just there. Mm. It's it, it is done. It is a fate accompli. My goodness. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's all that there is to say about Bohemian Rhapsody. So we've covered that very well. <laughs> um, Let's close the book on that song. <laughs> no, we must come back to it. There's no doubt about it. Uh, speaking of national anthems, uh, John. Uh, we end this album with uh, go- a version of God Save the Queen, uh, music by Henry Carey, but arranged by one Brian May, a lovely one minute, 15 second of it. Um, Brian's version, we're not going to play it now because we play it at the end of every pod because that's the right thing to do. Um, but uh, a couple of things to say about it. Brian, Brian's version of the British National Anthem was recorded in 74 before the band Sheer Heart Attack tour and was then used to close out virtually every Queen gig from Sheer Heart Attack onwards. Um, um, when they uh, uh, when they uh, were recording the track, Brian performed a rough version on the piano for Roy Thomas Baker and Mike Stone, uh, calling his skills on the piano subpar at the time. Um, uh, and it's more than just a guitar version of the anthem arranged by Brian with some new parts at the end. So he has done a fiddle around with it um he did of course famously perform the song live on the roof of buckingham palace for the queen's golden jubilee in 2002 which he said he did as a homage to Jimi hendrix version of the star spangled banner and hendrix coincidentally did do an impromptu version of the british national anthem to open his set at the isle of white festival in 1970 uh, at the playback party for the album for the night of the opera album, Freddie leapt to his feet when God Save the Queen came on and demanded the press do the same by telling them, Stand up, you. That's what I've got to say about God Save the Queen. How cool is God Save the Queen? It's all, it always reminds me of that bit at the beginning of the Beeman Rhapsody movie, which actually I've now realised from this conversation is a really good title for that movie. Um, um, <laughs> I've now learned where it comes from. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> hey. Uh, but the, I think, is it is it Universal? I can't remember who released that movie. 20th Century Fox. 20th Century yeah. Fox, and Brian plays the 20th Century Fox. Fanfare, of course, mm. is so brilliant. Uh, but yeah, it's great. God save the Queen. It is. But I, th- I think it also is, you know, proves beyond anything that this album is meant to be a, a show. Yes. It's a theatre show because it's not just the gigs that would end with God Save the Queen. It was, you know, if you went to the cinema, they would play God Save the Queen. If you went to the theatre, it would end with God Save the Queen. So many things ended with yeah. the Did National the Anthem in the past. You know, like... always used to end their broadcasting yeah. schedule. Yeah, with the, yeah. they used to go, they'd be like, yeah. oh, go to bed. Yeah. Turn your yeah. televisions off, go to bed and play God Save the Queen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's sort of ba- it is it is the curtain coming down at the end of the show and I just think it's what it what that's what makes a night at the opera queen's most successful album. And and there is, you know, it is the album that has earned the right to to close out that way. And it, it always reminds me of this, that it's one of my favorite ever moments of Fred is when he marches out with a crown and a, yes. and a, yeah. you know, and a big like royal uh, cape um, and trim. oh yeah. my god and you're like yeah I'm called my band queen and I am one dear darlings you know <laughs> <laughs> but that little wry look in his face just knowing that absolutely everyone is on the in on the joke with him yeah. Um, yeah. but again never never disrespectful it's not like 
the Sex Pistols got Save the Queen in any way, right? It's not, <laughs> it's just, yeah, this is us playing the national anthem because we're Queen, darlings. It's amazing. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, Great but actually, I, it was spine tingling, wasn't it? Seeing Brian do it on the roof at Buckingham Palace. You know, so you just cool. you just think, you know, he must have thought I've done everything I'm going to do as a as a rock star. You know, I've played huge stadiums. I've been on, you know, on stage in front of literally, as we've just been hearing, hundreds of millions of people. What mm. more could I do to top that? And then ten mm. years after, you know, he loses one of his best friends and you know the lead singer from the band. He's on top of the palace, playing it out in front sure. of more hundreds of millions of people. Fred would have been it looking is down on incredible. That. Yeah, I'm sure Fred would have been looking down on that and just um, hmm. he would have approved. Given his mate a nod and a wink. Yeah, amazing stuff. Amazing. So it now brings us to Simon's favourite part of the show: Queen. <laughs> oh, stress. De la Queen. Made in heaven. Made in heaven. We get to pick which track goes on to our ultimate playlist which we've got up on Spotify um, so we've got to pick one track from this side of the album Bohemian Rhapsody's in the bank That's uh, it's on a greatest hits album that's safe so of the remaining tracks uh, Suze well I started out the podcast thinking well I'll just pick Prophet Song because Bohemian Rhapsody is you know, as we were saying, it's almost too obvious. But since our chat, I'm going to say Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, no, we've already got Bohemian Rhapsody. That's oh, that's already yeah. in the bank. Prof- so of the remaining uh, pr- tracks... Prophet song, please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Let's do well, that one again, shall we? No, that's fine. That's fine. That's all right. We don't need to do that again. Uh... It was really dumb of me. I was there going like, come on, make a decision. Like an idiot. <laughs> Trying to decide between Bohemian Rhapsody and Prophet Song is not a pain you needed to put yourself through. No, Prophet no. Song's a great shout. Taking years off my life doing that. <laughs> How are you doing, Simon? I, I'm actually all right. There was a bit of a decision to make here, um, which, as you know, I'm not normally very good at, um, because I can't. I do find it hard to separate myself from that emotional connection that I have to love of my life, as I think every you know, Queen fan does. But I think it would be incredibly remiss of us to have a Queen de la Queen without Prophet Song on it, because it is such an extraordinary piece of work. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm going to go with Prophet Song. Really? OK, cool. Mm. Uh, John, God Save the Queen? <laughs> I'm slightly torn. I mean, Prophet Song for me is the obvious choice, but it's sort of difficult because the the importance of Love of My Life mm. in Queen's sort of live history and the importance it plays in their relationship with their fans needs to be noted. However, that said, Prophet Song. <laughs> really? Okay. All right. Well, um, there is a song on this side of the album where if it doesn't matter how many times I come up, it comes up. I'm going to love it. So my personal vote is going for Good Company. It is the song that I look forward to listening to the most on side B of A Night at the Opera. However, with three big votes for Prophet Song, that is what goes into the Queen de la Queen, which leaves one final choice, my folks. Uh, out of all of the songs on uh, A Night at the Opera, um, what's your favourite? This is just for fun. This isn't going on a playlist. No one's publishing this. 
Um, so if, if the entire album that isn't your yeah you're that my best friend okay, okay. you're yeah if they're on a great sets so you're my best friend of Bohemian Rhapsody that's banked okay. that is banked that's banked okay so Suze okay I had my my first Queen fan was my friend Paul Ditch who loves this podcast oh, <laughs> and we hey, when uh, we met up last summer. Um, we we've known each other since I was ten. Since let's face the music at Oakwood wow, School, and amazing. he he uh, he said he heard a night at the opera when he was eleven, and it changed his life, um, and it changed the way he looked at music. So I think that's worth putting out there before I make my final choice that this album changes lives. It does. Um, yeah. I'm gonna say Prophet Song. I'm gonna okay. I'm going for Prophet Song. That's a beautiful choice. I love it. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, my son uh, took himself out to Hengisbury Head. He'd never listened to Night of the Opera and he knew that he was gonna listen mm-hmm. to it for the first time. He put the headphones on and just sat there looking out at the ocean, I think last summer, mm. and just listened to the whole thing from start to finish and he just rang me and went Oh my god! And we had this amazing show. It was amazing. Um, yeah, incredible. Uh, Simon, um, because I have been humming it pretty much every day, all day since we recorded the last podcast. So that's got to mean something. Thirty nine. Yeah, that's a good choice. That's a really good choice. What a song! Uh, and we now know which planets they could have visited. So it's even better. Yeah, exactly. I know so much more. <laughs> John, well, I think. Um, I think. Th- Still, the Prophet song for me stands out when I think about it. Um, I think there are other songs that are sort of more important in in the album structure. But I do think, the more I think about it, the more I think that Bohemian Rhapsody is objectively the best song ever written. Yes. I mean, I think I think it actually is, yes. even though it probably if I could take 10 songs to a desert island, it wouldn't be one of them. I do think it is just so unlike anything else anyone has ever made and will continue to top charts long after we're all gone in in it's in a such a ludicrous way mm. and i love that um the front cover to night of the opera is in that scene in the simpsons where homer's uh, remembering all of his best drinking days and he <laughs> passes out on a beanbag uh with a pit poster of night of the opera behind him Brilliant. god that's great um so uh yeah i you know, in a you know, like Freddie always said that he felt somebody to love was a better song than Bohemian Rhapsody, and and for me it is. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. Objectively, it is the greatest song ever. It has to be because of the impact it's had. It's mad, um, mm. you know. Uh, but for me, I am going to agree with the band and pick their favourite, third favourite track off the album, uh, and say, um, uh, uh, I'm in love with my car. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Why not? Right. It's their, f- it's their third favourite track on the album. So, uh, and it is awesome. And I'm always going to shout out for Roger. Yes, <laughs> baby. Let's rev that engine. Right. It's their third favourite track on the album. There's no doubt about it. Right. Fourth favourite track, thirty nine, because they put that as the side B of "You're My Best Friend." But to sell as many album copies as they could, I'm in love with my car. Boom. <laughs> There you go. Can't argue with that. And it's awesome. And I love it. Uh, Right. Oh, God. I've got to finish the pod now. Okay. So, (laughs) email us with your stories and questions. Queenpod at thequeenpodcast.com. We've got fantastic 
letters coming in and uh, wonderful questions. So please keep them coming in. Uh, you can comment on the pod at the Queen Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, we have a Patreon now. So if you are inclined and able to support us, then please, please do uh, participate in that. It means so much. And um, if you. Uh, 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 are able please take the time to give us a star rating on your podcast platform and even give us a little review because it's so encouraging for us and um uh, all that it remains us to say is take good care of those you call your own and keep good company thank you to suze simon john and producer jars goodbye Bye. <laughs> This has been The Queen Pod, a Seven Seas Films production, edited and produced by me, Fergus March. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and stay in touch by emailing queenpod at thequeenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Queen Pod.